are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. So this week, we're talking about movement. And here's where I'll be a little confessional. Whenever I hear people talking about having a movement practice, part of me is like, I move plenty. I'm super active. I don't know if I need a movement practice. And then something will come along and kind of slap me upside the head and make me realize that while I exercise a lot, I don't necessarily move a lot. And unless I have a deliberate routine, my range of movements, especially as someone who rides a bike for literally thousands of miles each year, can be kind of limited. So take the sit to stand challenge that we did over at Feisty Menopause as an example. For those of you who didn't see it, we did this challenge over on our Instagram where you had to lower yourself into a seated position on the ground and stand back up again without using your upper body at all, not pushing off on the floor or pressing your elbows into your knees. And, you know, I thought that's easy, right? (laughs) Well, it wasn't pretty, but I managed it. And I realized like while I was twisting myself in and out of pretzel form, that I could feel my right hip was way tighter than my left and my left glute was not really pulling its weight and all sorts of stuff that my body just compensates for while I'm riding my bike, running, and even lifting weights. And those compensations, they can lead to aches and pains and overuse injuries over time, which is literally the last thing we need since our connective tissues are already getting pretty finicky on us at this stage of life. So I'm stoked to bring you this conversation with Petra Fisher of Petra Fisher Movement. Petra is a movement coach who is certified in restorative exercise and functional range conditioning. She works a lot in controlled articular rotation, or CARS for short, which are small controlled movements around your joints that are designed to improve your range of motion and the function and health of your joints. We talk all about that practice, as well as the benefits of barefoot walking, walking in minimal shoes, how to really breathe into your abdomen correctly, and how to take care of pretty much all of your joints from your feet to your head so you can have less pain, more joy, and better movement through menopause and beyond. Petra lists a number of resources throughout this one where you can find out more about the exercises she talks about and the footwear she recommends, and I will drop all of that in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. All right, before we get to it, This is the last week to be part of our special 100th episode of Hit Play, Not Pause. We've been collecting voicemails from listeners telling us what they enjoy about the show and what they've learned and ways that it has impacted their lives. And it's been a joy to listen to. So head on over to speakpipe.com slash hit play and leave us a message. If this show has left an impression on you, if it has changed something for you, I would love to hear all about it. I will put a clickable link in the show notes to make it super, super easy. As always, you can find us at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. You can join our private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group and be part of our conversations there. Also remember, we have a weekly blog that you can sign up to get dropped into your inbox each week at feistymenopause.com. I also have an email if you want to reach me. I'm at hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. As always, if you like the show, please share it with your friends and on your socials. And if you don't already, please follow the show on Apple Podcasts. To do that, just go to the show in the Apple Podcasts app and hit the little plus button on the right upper hand side. That way it automatically uploads each week. And it also makes Apple happy, which in turn benefits us by making us easier to find. So thanks. Lastly, I just want to thank NutriSense for their continued support of this show. Someone in the Hit Play Not Pause group was asking, you know, are there really any benefits of wearing a continuous glucose monitor? And I can say that the time I spent with it, and no, I I don't wear one forever, but I do check in now and then. Um, The time that I spent with it really, really did open my eyes to how when I fuel myself with complex carbs like oats and beans, my blood sugar is way more stable. And also I really feel so much better. And that 
for me, like eating more carbs has been absolutely a big health and performance positive. I was not carb phobic by any means, but I definitely was not eating enough. And it's really, it's really turned things around for me on a few levels of performance, body composition, and just how I feel. So anyway, thanks NutriSense. Okay. Enough of me. Let's have a few words from some of those awesome sponsors and get on with the show. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice-cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. All right. Well, Petra, I'm really excited to talk to you today. I think mobility is one of those things, you know, as we've done, we've done some shows on mobility before. And as you and I were talking offline, we've done a lot of shows related to many of the topics that we're going to cover today, whether that be pelvic floor or the importance of your feet. Um, and what I like about your work is it sort of treats us as this integrated human being, you know, and, and involves all of those things. So uh, thanks for being here. I am absolutely thrilled to be here. I've been loving your work too. So it's a really exciting moment for me. Cool. So let's let's just start a bit with your history because, you know, I went on your website as one does when they're going to talk to somebody. And, um, you know, you weren't always in this space. You came from a traditional sort of work, sit on your desk kind of space, do stuff on the weekend. So tell us a little bit about your history and how you got here. Yeah, for sure. I guess the short answer is that I was in corporate law in my early 30s, and it was a very sedentary job and a very demanding one. And I also really wanted to be active. So I was running a lot. I was weightlifting a lot. And I started getting just a ton of injuries. And over the course of many years, I transitioned from uh, being a lawyer into realizing that what I really loved was working with bodies. And it was my own injury history that taught me uh, both a lot of tools to work with my own body better, and also just how fascinating and fascinated I was by working with bodies. So it was because of all my injuries, I kept seeing movement therapists and massage therapists and all kinds of therapy. Where I was like, wait a minute, you know, what I've been doing isn't what my body actually needs. And it's led me to this place now where that's really what I focus all of my life and work on. So to get a little more specific on that, what were you, what did that look like? I mean, I, you know, I read that you would sort of like, you know, and, and I have actually been there like sleeping under the desk in early days of, of a career. Um, 
And then you were a runner, you did yoga, like what, and what injuries were you running into? Like what, what did that look like? Yeah, for sure. So I was trying my best to be a runner, uh, but I had consistent foot injuries. So Mm -hmm. I had shin splints and plantar fasciitis. Uh, I had a lot of numbness and tingling through my forefeet. Um, So I was in a very heavy support shoe and, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that. And it just, in the end, it just didn't work for me at that point in time, but it definitely was a, now I realize it was a giant red flag for what was happening with my feet, because at the same time at work, I was, I'm short, I'm only two, five foot two. And so I was wearing giant heels all the time at work. And when I was off work, I was wearing flip-flops because I'd had a surfer boyfriend and I was really into the flip-flops. So I was doing terrible things to my feet and then pounding them when I was running. So not coincidentally, I was running into pelvic floor issues at the same time, because as I think, you know, foot stuff and pelvic floor stuff is closely related. And literally every time I did anything, I would get an issue. I would get a knee issue or a hip issue or shoulder pain. So then when I kind of transitioned less out of, I, I was in corporate law at that time and I trans- transitioned out of there uh, into a job that was a little bit less intense. It was a nine to five, a true nine to five job. And at that stage, I really started trying to focus on fixing myself and working with my injuries. And I spent a lot of time in different offices getting external treatments for these injuries. And it started helping, but they weren't really going away. They were just fantastically persistent in my body. So I really had this kind of early window into the very typical injury pattern that many of us suffer from in modern life. And I have a particularly hypermobile, I'm quite hypermobile and I work hard, I'm muscular, so I can really easily overload myself. Um, but I just didn't know that at the time because nobody was talking about that at that point. You know, that was your your 30s and I don't, how old are you now? Have you gone into? So I'm not, as far as I can tell, in menopause yet. But one of the reasons I've been digging into your stuff is because I am very aware I'm 48 now. It's clearly coming up for me. And I'm really interested to kind of be prepared for what's happening. And so it was what is like light bulbs going off as I started listening to what you were talking about, that all of this work is even more key as we start losing collagen, because that seems to be the the connective, <laughs> the connective tissue that holds us all together, right? Um, and I think that you know, movement is our best tool for maintaining things like our feet and our pelvic floors and our joints, but it has to be... I think physiologically appropriate movement because you can't just keep pounding yourself. You have to be giving yourself movement that heals and gives you appropriate loading rather than overloading and underloading, which tends to be the way that our, our exercise culture works. Gotcha. Let's dig into that a little bit. I want to explore why just traditional exercise doesn't address the things that you're talking about. You know what, even if you do, and I want to be clear, like even if I'm doing if I'm running or I'm mountain biking and I'm also strength training, um, do I still need to do some more movement practice, you know, in, in your opinion? And talk a little bit about those connections between your feet and your pelvic floor and your knees and your joints. Like you keep bringing yeah. it up, but like, let's lay a foundation. All right. So those are two giant, big, different questions. I know. I know. So <laughs> Let's talk first about why our exercise system isn't really enough. And I think, I mean, I see almost everything through a lens of let's think about our ancestral development as human beings. How did our bodies evolve as movers? What was the environment like that we evolved in? And what did ancestral movement look like? So the best evidence that we have for that is that we would have had long periods of low level movement all day. So a lot of walking, a lot of zone two cardio, so a lot of carrying. short bouts of intensity. So maybe 20 minutes where you're looking at intense work, but overall large quantities of medium to low level movement and a lot of rest. So what our exercise program tends to look like is a whole lot of absolutely nothing and then very high intensity. So that's number one. Number two is that even when we think about diversity of movement, you're talking about running and weightlifting and probably sitting in the desk a lot, maybe standing at your desk if you're lucky. That, that's my life. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And those are awesome. Like you're, you're getting yeah. more variety than a lot of people are, but you're still not wiggling your toes or necessarily getting full range shoulder movement daily. You know, you need, your body is continually remodeling. So the variety and, you know, when you think about the feet, especially, and as you know, that's a big thing for me, we've got something like 26 bones in our feet, 33 joints, those all need to move and they don't get movement inputs unless they're on natural textures or very, very textures. So we're missing out. We're getting great on the big picture, moving our bodies in space and 
not so well on the little picture of those micro movements that actually our cells require. So that's the missing link, I think, in my view. So we're, we've got a, a mismatch in terms of time and intensity and a mismatch in terms of widespreadness of our inputs. Yeah, that makes a, a lot, lot of sense. Um, yeah. And and it's it's so difficult because I, I know that, you know, I've heard you talk about a stand, you know, it is nice to, to, you know, go from a sitting position to a standing position, but you're still basically locked into a standing position. You're still not doing those micro movements that you're talking yeah. about, right? Well, did you know that there was actually a giant push to get people away from standing at the turn of the last century because everyone was in factories and they were getting injuries from standing yeah. all the time? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's really, um, you can't just substitute one type of being still for another type of being still, which of course is really difficult in our work environment of, of today. So for my personal work life, I switch between a floor sitting desk and I really like floor sitting because it's quite easy to change your position when you're on the floor. You get a lot of different um, positional variations, which mean a lot of different inputs for your hips and knees and ankles. And you get the benefit of going up and down many times a day. So when you're looking at menopause and muscle mass and using our joints, you get such a no time required, easy win. I know Kelly Sturette talked about it as well. It's so powerful, so simple, and so useful for our lives. So, and the other thing about it <laughs> is I give myself a 10 to 15 minute timer and I move after those 10 to 15 minutes. I don't move very much. I'll just bounce around or I'll roll my feet out or I'll do some push-ups. But we start building up inflammation in our muscles within that period. And so just getting some movement in regularly seems to be very protective for our bodies. Within 15 minute increments. It's so short, but yeah, about 15 yeah. minutes. Yeah. And it it's interesting that, you know, I we we put up uh people who follow us on feisty menopause will have seen that we put up this sit to stand challenge from the floor, you know? So like, and it's funny, you know, I mean, I put up the thing, you, the goal is to like lower yourself onto the ground, you know, and then raise yourself back up without using your hands, you know? And a lot of people who are incredibly active really struggle, you know, to, to do that. So it's, the, the whole floor thing is really intriguing to me right now. And it's come up a, quite a bit on the show. I mean, Kelly brought it up and it's come up a few times that, that it's a really easy way to get some mobility into your day. Yeah, I love no brainer stuff like that. You know, you get high value with fairly low effort. And it's absolutely true that um, it can be very challenging unless you're adapted to it. You need significant amounts of hip mobility. And, you know, you're going to find once you start doing it that you're going to tend to patternize your up and down movement as well. And so that's another right. opportunity to add variety because otherwise you are, you know, I always cross my legs one way to do the cross sit, sit, sit to stand. So it's another opportunity to add variety. And it's also going to reveal your weak spots very quickly. It's funny. It's funny you say that because I can lower myself cross leg with one way, but I, like when I was on the ground, I was like, I, I can't get up with them cross the same way. So I had to recross them and get up with them because I know I'm very, you know, from all those years of mountain bike racing and starting on the same leg and descending and doing all the things, I'm very right leg dominant, um, yeah. in many ways. And it's, it's very interesting to see how those imbalances sort of over time, uh, play out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've been noticing the same thing on my left leg recently. I just can't do a pistol squat the way that my right leg can. And, you know, it gives you an opportunity to work on it whenever you find those gaps. I, I kind of like that about finding gaps because otherwise those gaps sneak in 10 years later. So when you see those those missing pieces, it's actually kind of a great, great opportunity. Talk to us a little bit now in that other big bucket that I asked about, about those connections yeah. between your feet and the rest of you and, you know, and how the pelvic floor and all the joints, I mean, these things are all separately problematic in women in this demographic. You know, we, we hear a lot about foot issues and knee issues, hip issues and pelvic floor issues, and you're drawing like dots between all of them. And I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's just so many. So it's an exciting thing to talk about. I think that when you're looking at feet and pelvic floor stuff, the very first place to begin is looking at what a raised heel does to you when you're standing. So when you stand in a raised heel, it's a bit like you're standing on a hill all of the time. Hmm. That pushes your pelvis and body forward and it causes you to have to compensate the whole way up your chain. What that typically does to your pelvic floor muscles is it keeps them in a shortened position on a regular basis. And I know you've talked a little bit about how the pelvic floor issue for most people is what's called 
hypertonicity rather than hypotonicity. That's the same as I think a way of saying that we have these super tight, short pelvic floor muscles that can't generate strength. So when we're keeping them short all the time, because we're wearing a heeled shoe, you don't have much of an opportunity to lengthen and create some like really functional, healthy pelvic floor. That'd be number one. Number two is that when you're looking at the arches of the foot, you really have a system that's created both by intrinsic foot muscles and by what's happening at our hips. So the hip rotation that's part of creating a supination, pronation, transitioning gait is also very functional for our pelvic floor. Our hip rotators are our pelvic floor muscles. They're the same thing. So let me just back up a little bit. Supination and pronation. I say, say that a, in, in plain yeah, language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you talking about? Nobody knows what they are. And when they do know it, they know that they're pronating too much. And that's not a very helpful lens. So what supination, the, the feet when you walk have this amazing function where they can twist to become rigid so that we can push ourselves forward in space and that's called supination and they can untwist in order to absorb shock as we land and that's called pronation and in a perfectly functioning human foot you're going to get this twisting and untwisting motion in every single step as we walk so that is how our feet are able to work as a bike yeah most people tend to think of that as rolling out and rolling in is that not correct you know when i've when i've heard about pronation in the past i've heard it in those terms like sort of rolling out you know towards the edges of your feet and supination is rolling in but you i'm hearing a little something different from you yeah i think our vocabulary around it is is evolving quickly right now Uh um and because it's, it's it's a movement that can come from hips and knees and ankles and feet we tend to think of rolling out on the ankles and rolling in but actually it's intrinsic to the like the the core of the movement is intrinsic to the foot and you will actually see all of the foot bones locking and unlocking throughout mm-hmm. the gait cycle. Ideally, and many of us have lost that capacity. So it's kind of like dead butt syndrome. We also have these like slapping feet syndrome because they're not doing that movement well. And where that becomes really relevant for our pelvic floors is that it isn't just something that's located in our feet. It's something that runs all the way up to our hips. And so you're losing out on movement in all of those joints if your feet aren't able to sustain those movements, including those deep hip rotators, which are fundamental to pelvic floor function. So I would say those are the two big heavy hitters when it comes to feet and pelvic floors. And your knees are a, a, a transitionary place in there too. Like where that's got to be affecting your your knees. Yeah, it is. I think that for most people, the knees are where you feel the problem, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. where the problem appears. So you're going to find when you have hips that are really locked up or fake ankles that are really locked up, you're often going to have knee pain. That goes along with the fact that, you know, our knees are a joint. They're supposed to do a few things. They're supposed to flex. So they're supposed to bend, like kicking your, your, your heel towards your butt, they're supposed to straighten completely. And they're actually supposed to rotate as well. And that rotational capacity is one that most people don't realize we have and don't train. But when you're looking at female athletes, and you're getting those ligament injuries, a lot of the time, it's because we aren't training our rotational capacity, which can actually strengthen our connective tissues in our knees. So that rotation is part of that pronation and supination moment. And yeah, like anywhere in that entire chain, your knees can feel the pain. So as is also really important here. So there again, we're getting back into that. I'm wearing shoes a lot. I'm sitting in chairs a lot for people who aren't aware of what the psoas muscles are. They are the only connecting muscles between our spine and our legs. So they hold our spine to our legs and they get short when we're wearing heels. They get short when we're sitting in chairs and they get short when we're stressed out and anxious. And when they're short, they keep us in constant hip flexion. They take our legs forward, which means our knees are bent all the time, which can be very, very poor loading for our knees. So that's why you almost have to go full body to start really unpicking any individual pain pattern. I mean, you might have an easy pain pattern that you can fix with like four exercises, but many people, including myself, have to think much more big picture about these constant whole body loading patterns. So what what do we do? Like, I mean, you you laid out a very good groundwork for all the issues. So like, um, you know, recognizing that women are, I, I can hear them going, oh my God, like another thing that I need to like try to fit into all the yeah. things that I'm yeah. doing to take care of myself. Yeah. Maybe I'll just sit down. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Yeah. 
totally, totally. It's crushing, right? We have so many shoulds out there and we have shoulds yeah. about how we're supposed to look and what we're supposed to do. So I really try to help people feel empowered and get tools that are a little bit more compact, especially to start out. Because it can be really interesting doing this work. And I think that, you know, if you can avoid the overwhelm, it's actually a great personal awareness journey because you can learn about yourself in a really sustainable and nurturing way. So that's why I start, I start people in one of two different areas. I'm either suggesting that you switch to minimal footwear and do the footwork to help you do a sustainable footwear switch. And that's because footwear and foot health impact everything. It's not just your pelvic floor. It will go all the way up to your head and your neck. It's an easy win because most of us have really weak feet. And so you can do a relatively small amount of work and get a significant improvement. And it's an all day win. So we were talking before you asked about why barefoot shoes instead of just spending some barefoot time. Spending barefoot time is awesome. I absolutely encourage and endorse doing some more time barefoot, but a barefoot shoe gives you your whole entire day strengthening your feet instead of just some barefoot time and some foot exercises. So in terms of that time under tension, heavy hitters, I think that for for feet that can take barefoot shoes, it's a no brainer. Now, I understand you've got a, a a bone spur in one of your toes, you're one of those very few exceptions where that might not be your particular best option. But there are very few foot conditions that don't benefit from minimal shoes, um, at the very least, and certainly from foot exercises and barefoot time. And then you get a heavy hitter, and then you've got a foundation. And once you've done that transition, many people can leave the foot exercises alone or do them minimally and move on and work on something else. So you've got a nice kind of package there. Let me let me rewind a little bit further. Even though when you're talking about a heeled shoe, are you talking about like stilettos, kitten heels, wedges, or does any shoe with any kind of lift in the back count technically as a heeled shoe? And what do you mean by for people who are going to work every day? Like what kind of shoe would qualify as sort of minimalist that they could still look like a professional person in? Yeah, those are both great questions. So yeah, I mean, any raised heel. So a lot of the time, what we call flat, in fact, have a raised heel, right. most men's shoes have raised heels, yeah. it is absolutely widespread in our footwear. And there are now many attractive work friendly minimal shoe options. So about, you know, when I started this work eight years ago, that we had like Vibram five fingers and a lot of running shoes. But now there are so many different minimal shoe options. Uh, I have a whole transition to minimal shoe blog on my website right now that's got a list of my favorite minimal shoe reviewers and they're an incredible resource because they go out there and they try them on and they find great options and those are they're all there winter boots sandals office appropriate stuff so many options we can put a link to that in the show notes for sure for people awesome. so we don't have to go awesome. through all that here and what do those i mean i do you you had mentioned my toe and my toe is actually much much better you know i talked about that with the 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 supplements I use, I use Prevenex, which I've talked about, like glucosamine has been a good friend to me and Prevenex particularly has been a really good friend to me. So I have some, it's not the same as my left foot, but I definitely have some mobility. It doesn't wake me up in the night. I can do lunges. I can do all that stuff. Um, I use uh, yoga toes to try to keep things, you know, like I wear them while I'm writing sometimes, the little separators. What other foot work is good for women to incorporate into the laws? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of uh, a great question. I think that I really like toe separators for most people. So the other issue that many of us have in our feet is some bunion creation, which is 100% a narrow footwear, narrow toed footwear issue. The bunion creation leads to the arch collapsing, leads to the hips not working right, is definitely closely linked to that whole pelvic floor thing. So I like toe separators you can wear when you walk. So there's a oh. brand called Correct Toes that you can wear out and about, which help put your big toe into a more natural alignment, which supports the arch, which supports building the right muscles. So those are my generally recommended ones. They fit in shoes? Yeah, as long as they're minimal shoes. So it's not absolutely every single shoe. But when I try on mm. shoes, I try them on with my Correct Toes on. That's interesting. That is really yeah. interesting. I'll put a note to that in the show notes too. Yeah. Um and then just going, I mean, I do love going barefoot so that there are benefits to going barefoot. They're huge. There was a really interesting study that measured a cohort that did foot exercises for eight weeks against a cohort that just went barefoot for eight weeks and the barefoot cohort in barefoot shoes. Uh, the barefoot shoe cohort had the same strength gains as the exercise cohort. So you will simply get stronger by spending time barefoot or in a more minimal shoe. 
Where that gets a little bit tricky is that many of us also need to restore function. So for example, where we've lost pronation and supination mechanics, it can be really useful to do more focused exercises that are gonna help you restore that capacity. So I put together a, a giveaway that are kind of my favorite exercises to get anyone started and to deal with most of the common issues which are plantar fasciitis and bunions and often nerve stuff in the forefoot uh, because those are very widespread. For somebody who's got a rigid big toe, like the issues you probably know apart from pain is the fact that you don't have big toe extension, which is what you need when you push off in gait. And if you don't have that capacity, so you may be able to rebuild the capacity. You know, I think that people are a little conservative about thinking about what they can rebuild. If you can rebuild the capacity, that's the ideal thing. And mobility work might be an option. But if the bone is truly blocking that capacity, it's going to affect your gait because you're going to have to work around the big toe. And that's why somebody in, in that position is going to want to have a shoe with uh, what's called toe spring to allow them to still walk forward instead of to have their feet spin out. Yeah. Um, the, the woman I had on for the foot show talked about that too, having the foot yeah. spring. Um, yeah. Excellent. So I, I mean, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I'm I just a little sneak preview. Like what are like you hear about the classic foot exercises, like the toe scrunches and the toe lifts. Are, are you talking about that level of sort of exercise? Yeah. Um, yes and no. I actually don't like toe scrunches. They kind of are um, no longer considered ideal because they, they actually encourage a toe gripping clawing movement that many of us do too much anyway. Um, it is, yeah, it's pretty basic. There's some rolling with some specific techniques. I've got some isometrics because isometrics are one of the best way to, so pales and rails type isometrics. That's technical jargon as well for the type of mobility work that I teach, but it's a stretching technique to build range of motion. Um, and then calf raises. Calf raises with mm. some variations to build pronation and supination are a wonderful exercise. And they're also great because they are one of those ones that you can do when you're making your coffee in the morning. And so a lot of the time when I'm teaching exercises, I'm really trying to find ones that you can pull into a toolbox of stuff you can do in your genuinely demanding life, because I just know how hard it is for women, especially as you start hitting children plus parents. Totally. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. I find um, stand up paddle boarding is so amazing for my feet. Oh, <laughs> My God, like the first time, because I, I absolutely love it. Everyone is probably tired of hearing me running my mouth about it, but I, it's just such a Zen thing for me. And I just, I have my binoculars and I'm watching birds and I'm in such a wonderful place, but like my feet were almost incapacitated after the first time because I was out there for like three hours and I was like, whoa. Um, but wow, what a, I, I'm like, this has got to be so good for my proprioception and my feet and everything that you know, that comes from that, which when we get older is balanced, right? I remember reading a really right. interesting study years and years ago about put, they were putting people in um, assisted living homes on vibrating pads underneath their feet to right. sort of wake up their feet again. And it was really right. helping them fall less and have best, better right. balance. So there's a, there's a lot to, to keeping your feet active and lively that, that transcends even what we're talking about, I, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, there's a ton of ways to do it. But we have major sensory systems in our feet. That's how your brain knows what it's supposed to do to get you around the world. So, you know, I think that balance and I mean, balance is super simple to work on as well and very doable. Like you can stand on one leg when you're washing the dishes. It's such a great thing to practice. There's a lot of really nice balance beams that are out there now that you can buy it. So if you're talking about your standing desk, you can be on a balance beam and working or I, I can work at standing on a balance beam. And it's great for your feet and super simple and easy and works on all the things at the same time. So there's a lot of nice little tools like that for sure. I think the other thing about a standing desk. So my my first standing desk really triggered my plantar fasciitis because I was standing in a I exported my high heel standing technique to my standing desk. So I think it's really important. That's where you get the whole body piece. You have to address psoas and hamstring tension and glutes and where your standing alignment is if you want to get the most benefit out of your your standing desk as well. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what it means to have a complete like daily joint mobility routine? Like what does that look like to, to, to address all these pieces that you're talking about? I really like the functional range conditioning system, which is where my mobility teaching comes from because it's a very powerful tool to meet many needs. So most of the joint mobility work that I share with the world is focused on an exercise called a controlled articular rotation, which is 
very simple in its heart. It's just a joint circle. You're taking your joints through their fullest range of motion with intention and control. What the cars do is they, they feed your joints, they clean out your joints, they maintain your joint range of motion, and they move your joints every single day, all of your joints through your whole body in about a 10 minute package. So once again, we have this incredibly powerful tool that you can add to most lives, even if you're crazily busy and you can do them anywhere, you don't need special equipment for them. And then they're powerful because they're going to teach people how to, so one of the things that, that we do in our movement is we do these big picture movement patterns, right? We talked about that a little bit, you know, you're reaching for something from the cupboard, you're moving your shoulder and you're moving your scapula and you're moving your spine, you move everything. At a certain point, though, we start to lose the capacity to break that down and just move the pieces. And so you can hide a problem in one of those pieces for a long time because you're you're moving your scapula so much that you don't realize you can't rotate your shoulder. And I think women especially, we, we tend to be the ones who are getting the frozen shoulders. So like, yep. We get a lot of shoulder issues. And we are also very poor at moving our scapula. We get sticky upper backs, sticky upper backs. Suddenly you're looking at a pelvic floor issue. Uh, you're looking at a shoulder issue. You're looking, So that whole piece doesn't move enough the way that we live right now. So the cars were actually invented as um, Andrea Spina's answer to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle because they're a compact movement vitamin that you can take to give you variety such as our bodies would have closer to what our bodies would have experienced in a more natural lifestyle uh, but in a 10 minute kind of package and then you can build from there you know if you are wanting to build your big toe extension there's tools that you can build from there so my personal practice is I do cars as a maintenance tool and an assessment tool to be like oh how's my shoulder today every morning and then when I'm doing a mobility workout I'll do a few more cars for the areas I want to work on and then I'll work on strengthening my specific things so for example I've been having some left knee pain I'm doing some more advanced mobility work to work on that left knee uh, but mostly everything's grounded in the cars so tell people again because we said it pretty quickly what cars stands for and then I'd love to hear an example like tell me what that looks like for that upper body we talk I've talked to a lot of women who do have the the frozen shoulder and and the issues and it's it's debilitating yeah 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 so cars, cars yep controlled articular rotations so it just is joint circles but they are specific because you are not allowing your other joints to get involved and they are systematic because because they're part of a system. And so they're very versatile, but understanding the system will help you because you can do them lightly and just kind of loosen things up. You could do them as you as you learn how to do them. You can do them loaded at high intensity. So for somebody like you who's cycling a lot, I could imagine that doing you know a high intensity hip car would be a really nice pre or post cycling option, probably post. You know, it supports everything else you do. In terms of what it looks like for the upper body, you know, there's a car for your neck and there's a car for your thoracic spine and there's a car for your shoulder blades. You know, you could you could try it simply by kind of reaching your shoulders up and then wide and then down. And you're trying to find the fullest circle. You're going to slow it down. I heard of lots of things crack up. when I just... Yes! <laughs> <laughs> All right! Crack, crack, crack. <laughs> Super normal and not something to worry about. The cracking decreases, though. So you're just trying to find the edges of your movement through the whole entire shoulder blade. And you're going to go super slowly and mindfully. You're giving your brain a ton of feedback. So one of the things that's cool about working on your joints is that the, the nerves in your joints have special access to your brain. They don't slow down through your spinal cord, which I see as a signal that your brain is getting a lot of how to move your body information from your joints. So the more you move your joint, the more you build your joint capacity, the more of these nerve fibers you actually have, the more options you have in your movement so that when you're facing a novel movement challenge, your brain can meet it with more options because you have more feedback and more capacity. So it's very enhancing for both performance and life. So if you want to get back to your balance thing, you start losing your balance. You only have one way to move. You're much more vulnerable than if your brain knows, hey, don't worry about it, hip. I know where you are. I know where your knee is. I've got all these ways that I can catch you now. And I also would imagine that this it reminds me of a conversation way back. I think it was like our third show I had with Erin Carson, who trains a lot of triathletes in Boulder, like she's world champion trainer, um, talking about how this she's big in mobility, how this kind of work gives you access to muscles. You know, we talked about dead butt and all that. Like when you're not 
when you're not able to move your joint through its complete range of motion, your muscle is also not able to access its complete potential, right? For sure. For sure. It, I think because humans, you know, we like to we like to split things up into buckets and we kind of need to. And now when I talk about joint mobility, it sounds like I'm talking about your joints, but everything attaches to your joints and all movement depends on your joints. So if you want to be a great mountain biker or triathlete, if you want to be a person who can lift their child up off the floor, it comes down to your joints. And there's that muscle mass thing again, too, right? So you can have big picture muscle mass where you're building your biceps and your quads. But you've got a lot of tiny muscles in there, too, and they matter as well. So I think that focused mobility work is going to, it just gives you more access to more things. Where does the intersection of flexibility, stability, and mobility happen here? Because you had mentioned you're hypermobile. And, you know, I, I, my God, I've been writing about the stretching research for literally decades and how, you know, you need some rigidity to be stable and to be safe, you know, when you're doing exercise. But what is, how how does this all fit into your world? Like, how do you think about that? Especially as someone who mentions that you do have some hypermobility, so to speak. Yeah, it's a really good question. And unfortunately, the language around there, again, it's very unclear. So hypermobility might be better described as hyperlaxity. So you don't have control in a joint, you can you can get past your muscles, and you're hanging out in your ligaments, your ligaments themselves are too lax. So there's no seatbelt on the joint is a way to think about it. That I would say is more like extreme flexibility. So when you when I think about flexibility, I think about the ability to move into a passive range of motion. So having something external to your body that is pulling your arm, uh, your, your body into a stretch, a traditional stretch. There's nothing wrong with flexibility at all. And it's a prerequisite for mobility a lot of the time because range of motion is useful. But if you don't control the range of motion, then it's a recipe for an injury. So what I think an ideal situation is, is the place where you have a, a large range of motion and a very similar level of control between your passive range of motion and your active. So if you push your body into a position with an external force, you can get to that same position by just moving your body itself. So what I'm thinking of right now is doing push-ups. Your push-up or your your downward dog, your your plank, you have your wrist bent back at about 90 degrees. That's the floor and your body weight pushing your wrist into that position. And most of us can do it most of the time. You should also be able to simply pull your hands backwards into a 90 degree position. And if you can, if those capacities are close, you're less likely to have an injury in that area than if you're always pushing yourself into that passive range. So I think of mobility as having range plus control, which is awfully similar to stability where you've got that control. So I think that, again, the language is just unclear. But if you have control and you have range, then you have capacity. Right, right. That makes that makes 100% sense. And what you were also saying with the um, with the cars with the exercises you do, that is also, I'm going to use a very lay term, but saying lubricating the joints. I mean, there is a important piece there, right, as far as keeping the synovial fluids working. It's huge. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's another of those menopause specific yeah, that's um, why intersections, right? Oh, well, <laughs> how convenient. Um, absolutely. The way that our joints get fed is from movement. And that's that synovial fluid moving in and bringing in liquids. We don't have a lot of, um, of, card of, of blood coming to our joints. So you must move your joints if you want to keep your cartilage. And you know, again, as we're losing collagen, I think that I, I wish that we had more research on this. I was I was sad to hear that interview that you did about the, the joint capacity because like we just don't know. But it only makes sense that, you know, we have this tool that makes for healthier joints in the populations that we've been studying. Why would that not be a good tool to explore as we start hitting menopause? And, you know, I think that what we do have are some really interesting studies about hunter-gatherer populations, where what you actually see is that hunter-gatherer grandparents become the main, I'm going to say, <laughs> the main hunters and gatherers for their families. They're the ones who are going out and getting the food, while the parents 
who are in their 30s and 40s are the ones with the main childcare burdens. So you see fitter humans at the age of 70 because they're the ones who are going out and getting all the food than their younger children, than their you know mi middle-aged children. So I am convinced that we have capacity to maintain really great fitness throughout our lives, but it becomes significantly harder as we start to lose those kind of easy wins that we get when we're young. So if we keep moving, it seems like, as far as I can tell, the best tool that we have for maintaining that exists really. Yeah, no, I, I think that everybody actually agrees on that, that the yeah. movement, you know, I mean, that that's movement is medicine is sort of permeates everyone I talk to. Uh, where does, where does arthritis fit into this picture? You know, with somebody, because there's definitely people listening right now who are like, okay, but I have arthritis in this joint or this joint, you know, how, how does that factor into what we're talking about today? That's another really good question. I don't think there's a single answer because you have to think about a few things. So number one, as far as I can tell, it's still a really good idea to move your joint, right? You have to. So that's, that's how we keep our joints as healthy as possible. So then you have to start thinking, is it arthritis with pain or is it arthritis without pain? Because those two things can absolutely co like they're both a thing. You can have an arthritic joint that feels just fine, or you can have an arthritic joint that's extremely painful. When you're working with pain, you probably know the pain science right now is really interesting and pain often has very little to do with damage, which again, is why you're seeing those joints that are arthritic and don't hurt because maybe that person is sleeping well and is really nutritionally well-resourced. And, you know, so that person can go along with an arthritic knee and never have a problem, whereas somebody else can have an arthritic knee and can be very limited. So then you've got to address the pain and that can be done with all of these different tools including movement tools. So one of the very best movement tools that we have for pain is isometric work. Isometrics have an analgesic effect in our bodies. And isometric is a muscle contraction where we don't move our body at all. So it's creating force without movement. It's very safe. It doesn't cause shears in our cells at all. It's about the safest we've got. And what you do is you get to a place in your movement that doesn't hurt. And then you start producing force without changing position. And that often can give you more capacity. It may or may not. I mean, everybody's going to be unique. But I think that what you probably want to do if you have, say, an arthritic thumb is go for light, frequent movement in the biggest range that doesn't hurt and consider adding some isometrics and consider the bigger picture of maybe you're, you know, eating too much sugar um, and see where you get to on this plane of um of options that are, are increasingly out there. And you throw in sugar because of its inflammatory process. Yeah. Product. Yeah. 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 Sugar's huge for arthritis as far as I can tell. Yeah. Where where do you see eccentric contractions falling into this? Because when I've had uh epicondylitis, you know, or like it's tennis elbow, but I got it from mountain biking. Um, you know, like one of the things that I found super, super useful is I got um a rubber bar, you know, from Spry it was for it was for a tennis elbow, but you would just sort of like twist the bar and then resist it with the arm that hurts. And it it's not comfortable, but boy, it really resolved it. And I've seen similar work being done for like Achilles tendonitis and and those things too. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts on on that. Yeah, for sure. I love eccentrics. I think now we've moved away from arthritis. And we're talking about tendon and yeah, now we are. Yeah. Issues. Yep. And I think what tendons need is they need load, but they need rest as well. And that's why they're tricky because you got to find that right point between loading and resting. So depending on the phase, there's also a phase element to tendon issues where when you get them at the very beginning, there's going to be an inflammatory response. You get them later, you have disorganized tissues that need to be rebuilt. Either way, what you need to do is find a way to load them that doesn't hurt them. So isometrics are a great tool for loading the tendons as well, because it can be less painful. But as soon as you're able to, getting into some eccentric work is an excellent way to load tendons as well. And then eccentrics have all kinds of other benefits, including the fact that they help you lengthen as you load so that you start to get... Um, very functional tissue. So I'm thinking right now about your knee pain, working on eccentric loading for your knee, that's your going downstairs, that's your going down hills, you know, you, eccentrics have a huge place in both the exercise world and the mobility world, but they're not necessarily step one, but for rehabbing right. a tendon, for sure, 100%. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed 
for men. Brands have relied on the Shrink It and Pink It approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. I have run through all the thoughts that I had on this that to, to cover in a podcast. Was there was were there issues that you wanted to address um, in any of this work that we haven't covered? You asked sort of initially, like where should you start, and I was like, oh, you start with your feet or start with your joints. Mm. Those are both really great entry points, and then they let you get a an insight of insight. They let you get. Um, a foundation for doing additional work. So what you're going to tend to see is that if you've done some footwork, you've switched to barefoot shoes, maybe you've got a car's practice, then you're going to find out later, oh, hey, I have tennis elbow now. Like, what do I do about that? Because of course, you're still going to get injured. And what you start doing is you start building up more and more of a toolbox, whether it's from mobility work, so specific kind of mobility solutions, or uh, other parts of your exercise world. And you can start adding this lifestyle piece. So, you know, ground, ground living, floor sitting, whatever you want to call it. That's another way to add this time under tension piece. But then you're still a busy person who's active and who like, wants to be looking after their body. So the other thing that I really like to focus on is helping people find a ton of those little tiny exercises that you can do during your day. So whether it's tapers when you're doing your coffee, or how do you get little bits of extra exercise into your day? And how do you also think about your movement habits? So another thing that you mentioned in our pre-discussion was what movement issues an active population tends to get. And I think one of the biggest ones is, like again, going through that pelvic floor lens, a big issue for active women in our culture is that we have this huge emphasis on 
what our core looks like, not necessarily how it functions, but that tight toned, you know, flat abs is a huge cultural desire for us. And it's deeply problematic because that's not actually what allows our core to function. So what our core is supposed to be able to do is to prepare for loading. It anticipates by turning on You then load, it carries the load, and then it's supposed to turn off and relax. And that's a cycle. And the constant bracing, constantly sucking in our stomachs, totally shortcuts that cycle. It prevents our core from working well. When our core doesn't work well, we start having those pelvic floor problems because the pressure of breathing and working has to go somewhere. So that's another huge one to consider. And that's where you start thinking about your daily movement habits. And many of us have internalized this thing where we're always sucking in or we're always bracing because we were told we always have to brace and I just don't think that's accurate so what what is the what is the daily movement that counter can unteach that well I mean the first one is just to focus on as a habit you know I think most people if they realize that they're sucking in their stomachs can start trying to not suck in their stomachs I don't think many people realize how unhelpful a habit that actually is because that would be like the number one don't do this thing and it's really hard because of course we have so many um, loaded self judgments about what we look like. So just learning to totally relax tension in our belly can be really useful. Kelly Sturette talked to you a little bit about rolling before bed. Uh, and he was talking about rolling on kind of lacrosse style balls, harder stuff. But you could try a Pilates ball, like a squishy ball to roll on and you can roll your stomach also good for scar tissue, mm. you had a C section, mm. as a way to foster the capacity to relax so Mm. i'm not saying that your core should always be like completely relaxed but when our brain takes over and says hey core you should be working all of the time we need to get out of that and learning to let go and learning to change our habits so that our core can become reflexive and responsive again in a more functional system does um belly breathing deep breathing periodically help with that i don't love belly breathing (laughs) (laughs) why not (laughs) (laughs) it's another can of worms so we've got another very poorly um we don't talk about breathing with great language because people will say that belly breathing and diaphragmatic breathing are the same thing as far as i can tell you can't really breathe without using your diaphragm you can have a poorly functioning diaphragm but you actually have to use it so what belly breathing is you can contrast it if you can think about your your rib cage as a canister your 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 torso as a canister when you're belly breathing you are pushing pressure into the low part of your canister you're pushing it down and maybe forward so you're talking if that's your consistent strategy you're creating a lot of pelvic floor pressure which can be inappropriate loading for your pelvic floor you're talking about your diastasis recti so that's that pulling apart of abdominal tissues that happens to many men and women but women tend to notice it more so belly breathing as a consistent strategy is not necessarily very helpful we also know we don't want the chest breathing because that's going to be a lot of strain on our neck the piece that's missing is that most of us don't realize that our rib cage can expand and contract all by itself that's what we I tend to think of as a 360 degree breath it doesn't mean that your shoulders might not lift it doesn't mean that there might not be some breath going into your belly but that is a huge functional capacity that we've lost that gets very locked in and that suddenly creates more pressure up and down that's not always helpful so you know an everyday thing that you can do to practice breathing is stick your hands around your bra strap and practice press breathing in letting your ribs press into your bra strap letting them relax down, feeling and regaining that rib breathing capacity. Um, You know, there's more you can do for that, but that's not very hard. And it's going to give you some access to that right away. Once again, we're right back into your upper back mobility. So, you know, what you don't see in most of our bodies is the fact that our spines are getting hunched forward and we're, we're hiding it with good postural corrections. So what hunches our spine forward is years of wearing heeled shoes and tension and anxiety, the bones start to change their relationship to each other, they become immobile, our ribs don't move, our rib joints attach to our spine. So now we've got this spine rib stickiness. And then there's more pressure in our pelvic floor. So you need to get the breathing piece in place as well. So you get more suppleness, more capacity for the ribs to do their job, so that then everything else can do their jobs as well. 
I love that. I love that. And as somebody who's broken her share of ribs, I can tell you <laughs> that it, um, but you have to practice that. Like when you, when you have a cracked rib, I mean, that is one of the first things you need to do is take those, you know, that, that expansive breath that you're talking about. So it does not end up just like a very shortened, you don't get constricted. That makes tons of sense. And I'd never thought about that, but of course you do. And that's also, you know, as we get older, the ribs are a very common place for osteopenia and osteoporosis, again, because we're not moving them. So it sounds crazy to think that better breathing could be one strategy for keeping our bones stronger, but actually it is. That makes a lot of sense. Like that makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. I like, And I like thinking about it that way a lot. So I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah, what do you think about um, squatting? as a just not like putting a barbell on your back and squatting, but just squatting in general in your life. I love it. I love squatting. I think that all of us should squat. So again, if we're looking at a hunter gatherer model of living, I saw a great video one time of the, the Hadza people in Tanzania eating like just something that they'd hunted around a fire. And it was like five or six guys and they're, they're in a squat, but it's a very dynamic squat. It's a moving all the time. Like I live in this squat type squat. And I think that, as a personal movement goal, some daily squatting or moving your body towards an appropriate full squat for your body is a really, really good idea. One of the things that we see in squatting cultures is once again, less pelvic floor issues and less joint replacement issues because we're moving our bodies into a full range of mo motion movement. You know, your, your full knee flexion, full hip flexion, quite a lot of dorsiflexion. The squat, like the floor living, is a up and down transitional movement as well as the bottom resting place. And the way that you get into and out of that position has a pelvic floor impact. It can be very lengthening on the pelvic floor. So, you know, the pelvic floor, just like the core, you need it to be able to contract. You need it to be able to lengthen. You need to be able to relax and you need it to be able to create force, whether it's lengthened or shortened. You just want this very dynamic tissue. So a squat by encouraging lengthening can be really helpful for pelvic floor issues. And it can be done in a way that even emphasizes the lengthening. So the barbell squat, as I understand it, tends to be a very quad dominant knees forward movement. And you can actually work on a squat in a smaller range with a very vertical shin. So some people would probably call that more of a, a deadlift type movement. But working there, you get a lot more back line and a lot more pelvic floor lengthening. So you get to use your squat for many reasons. But anyone who's working on a pelvic floor issue can really benefit from getting that pelvis untucked back line lengthening squatting movement into their life for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a term um, that goes around like ass to grass, you know, which yeah. is a, which is the, the which is, you know, I this is one of those things like if I could rewind my career, I would, I would just take out all of the advice that we used to give, like, don't let your knees travel over your toes. And don't, you know, like we get be we became so afraid of squatting in like the Western, like really squatting. Oh, it's bad for your knees. Don't do that. Don't do that. And I'm like, this makes no sense. Like, this is what you actually do in life. And I'm so glad that it's sort of come around. Like, yes, this is a very functional thing that you actually should really be able to do without hurting your knees. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And it was interesting to me. So I, I, you know, in terms of kind of my recent personal history, we, um, we left our home in Toronto about four years ago in order to travel full time. And at that stage, we were living in a truck and camping in a tent. And the increase in squatting time in our lives was enormous, enormous, because when we camp, we also don't have chairs, and we don't have tables. It was really hard. And I didn't expect it to be hard, because I'm a pretty good lifetime squatter. But just the increase in the time under tension was crazy. And then we adapt to that. And now it's a lot easier. But yeah, it's such a great movement and gives you so much. I agree. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like all of it, like when you're pitching the tent and making the fire and doing other things. I mean, you're down, you're low. I mean, you have to be low yeah. to the ground and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. I, it was really interesting. Actually, I asked uh, some of my students kind of like why, why they want to squat. Cause I hear that from a lot of people that they'd like to have a full squat. And, you know, it really is like this really interesting way to live. Like it's, it's, you, you get down to your, your children's level and you get down to the level of your pets and you can, 
go hiking and not get your butt wet because you don't have to sit on the ground. It's really a functional movement and absolutely something that we evolved to do. And that, you know, I think that whenever you see these movements that you evolved with, there's dependency your body has on those movements. So, you know, it's not just your muscle muscle systems. It's not just your joint systems. It's probably, oh my goodness, I read this crazy thing. When you go up and down from a squat, it is a BBC article about how the pressure changes in your brain actually flush fluids through your brain and potentially has a memory impact. So, you know, we just don't even truly understand how deep all of these connections could be at the stage that we're at right now. So we know movement's incredible. I think that an ecologically, biologically, historically lens seems to be really helpful and comprehensive. How do we take our crazy, modern, busy lives with some restrictions and find the best substitutes for those movements to create more sustainability? I think that's the question that, that we should be thinking about. Yeah, that's awesome. And and to bring that back, I mean, you're you're doing sort of all this like evolutionary evolutionary speaking and all the all the readings on menopause right now, there's a lot of you know, the grandmother hypothesis that, you know, menopause is is purposeful because it we are incredibly useful at this time of lives. And it's important that 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 we're not having babies anymore. We're, we were playing other very important roles. And all of this functionality is part of that. Right. I mean, the grandmother would have been squatting all the time. 100%. 100%. And it really is like, I mean, like, I just find that so persuasive. Like, it's true. Human children are so darn hard. Like, you need Oh my God, help. they're so hard. <laughs> they're so hard. <laughs> so you need the help, which means that there's a role for us to play. And so, you know, our culture really, you know, uh, when women pass the age of around 50, we start to disappear from our cultural dialogue, even though we play this absolutely foundational role in making life worthwhile for everybody else, <laughs> including ourselves. So like, let's take that back a little bit, you know, life does not end when you hit 40. And I think it's really amazing work that, that you're doing to start to kind of create this conversation and help people realize that, you know, culturally, we're important. And I think that we need to recognize that and nurture ourselves and, and thank ourselves for for doing what we're doing. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with acupuncturist and herbalist, Michelle Hay. We talk all about the benefits of acupuncture for menopausal symptoms and active women. Michelle is also feisty and funny, and I really loved this conversation. So come on back next week. And until then, stay feisty, my friends. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.